This afternoon we're going to look together at what we confess and and what is summarized from Scripture in Lord's Day 29. And to give that background, we'll read Psalm 36 together. Psalm 36. Lord's Day 29, of course, being on the Lord's Supper. And Psalm 36 alludes to some similar themes, which we'll work out together this afternoon. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Now we turn together to Lord's Day 29 of the Catechism. Here we read as follows. Are then the bread and wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it is called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body, and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? And why does Paul speak of a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks in this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But... Even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge. First, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. And second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins.
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, boys and girls, a few months ago was Mother's Day. Did you make something for your mom? Maybe you made your best drawing or your best craft. Maybe you made it at school a few days before and it was really hard to wait. And you waited and waited and then it was Mother's Day. And then you gave it to her and you watched her face light up as she unwrapped it. Why did you do that? Why did you give something to your mom? He did it because he loved her. He wanted to show her that you love her. And you could tell her, of course, that you love her. But it's even better if you can show. You show her, right? The Lord also tells us in his word that he loves us. But he wants us to be absolutely sure about that. And that's why he gave us the sacrament of Holy Supper, or the Lord's Supper, as it's sometimes called. The form for the celebration of the Lord's Supper says he taught us to understand that as often as we eat this bread and drink from this cup, we are reminded and assured of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. Now, maybe you've never thought about this before, but what does that word hearty actually mean? It's not a word that we use very often. What does that refer to? Well, it means enthusiastic, exuberant, unrestrained. God's love and faithfulness is exuberant. It is wildly enthusiastic. It is completely unrestrained. In the words of King David, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O God. How precious is your steadfast love. God's love for his people is incomparable. But our problem is that we don't always realize that. So he wants us to be absolutely sure That's why he gave us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Sadly for us, the risk exists that the sacrament degenerates merely into an empty ritual, which is why we need to regularly reflect on it. We need to reflect on the nature of the sacrament, and we need to reflect on our participation in the sacrament. And so that's also how we're going to consider these thoughts this afternoon, that through the sacrament of Holy Supper... The Lord reminds us and assures us of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. And we'll see first that he calls us to reflect on the nature of the sacrament. And second, he calls us to reflect on our participation in the sacrament. So if you want to understand this Lord's Day, if you want to find your way through it, you need to first reflect on the importance of the covenant. What does it mean? This phrase, Covenant is a word that you often hear when you talk about, when people talk about church or the Bible. But what does it mean? Well, like I always tell my catechism students, the the covenant in the biblical sense is simply the word that the Bible uses to describe God's relationship with us. It's a relationship bound by God's solemn promise that He is our God and that He will never leave us or forsake us. He promises to show us love and loyalty, and he calls us to do the same. Now, why did he use, why does it use the word covenant? Why 
not just use a different word like relationship. Why did he enter into a covenant with us? Because this is the highest form of relationship that there is. Not all relationships are the same, right? An acquaintance, for example, um, does not rank on the same level as a friendship. And between your different friends, you have some that are closer to you than others. And friendship is different, again, from the marriage relationship. So a covenant is the most solemn and binding relationship that there is. And actually, an earthly analogy of the covenant is marriage. In marriage, two people solemnly promise each other to be loving and loyal to one another. And the marriage covenant is greater than just having two people live common law. No matter how much they love each other, living common law is not the same thing as being married. Even unbelievers realize this, which is why if you have unbelieving colleagues and if you ever get engaged or if you're about to get married, you tell them that, and then they will often congratulate you. Because even unbelievers understand that, that the marriage covenant is the most solemn and binding promise that can exist between two people. So the covenant in the biblical sense is basic to how God deals with his people. You find it implied already in the opening chapters of Genesis, and the word itself is first used when God speaks to Noah after the flood. And every time when, when God goes through a new phase in dealing with his people, the covenant becomes more and more specific until finally he, he promises the new covenant, which will be sealed with the blood of Christ. And that covenant was established by Christ himself at the Last Supper. So consider then how great God's love must be that he commits himself to his people in a covenant, that he actually wants to have communion with us. And that's what the Lord's Supper is about. It is a visible expression of God's desire to have communion with his people. It is a sacrament that displays God's covenantal love to us. This afternoon, we read from Psalm 36 together. Psalm 36 is a psalm that celebrates this covenantal love of God, and it shines so very brightly against the dark opening. These opening verses, the first four verses, sketch the attitude of the wicked. It shows how deeply sin lies rooted in the human heart. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. But then verse 5 blazes with the sudden presence of God. And the first thing mentioned in verse 5, the first thing that, that comes to the front when it starts to talk about God is his steadfast love. The loyal love that God has for his people in the covenant. In verse 5 he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. It's the, the psalmist goes on to, to use the greatest things that he can think of to compare God's covenant love to. And in verse 5, he says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. God's love and his faithfulness are unending. 
Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. God's righteousness is immovable. Your judgments are like the great deep. God's judgments are unfathomable. Man and beast you save, O God. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Are you starting to sense the scope of this love? Now what if we were to see the Lord's Supper as God's means to enable us to actually experience this very same covenantal love? And that is a point that Lord's Day 29 is trying to make to us. It's not an easy Lord's Day to understand the first time that you read it, especially the second part, but you need to keep this background in mind. So, if you look at the first question and answer, 78, that's fairly straightforward, right? It, it, it's not, not too difficult to understand. The, the catechism wants us to just get the basics right. It wants to make sure that we understand the nature of the sacrament. Obviously, the Roman Catholics take it quite literally. Um, interesting, by the way, I, I looked at the Roman Catholic catechism again this past week, and they actually describe the Reformed position quite accurately. They talk about the Reformers, and they say the Reformers had it all wrong. And they talk about what the, what the Catechism says here, and they say this is all wrong. And they make a case for their own Roman Catholic position. But the Catechism here says no. It says the, the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, and the wine does not turn into his blood. It wants to make sure that we understand that that's not actually what happens when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And that's fairly straightforward, right? We, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on that. Um, I mean, you don't need to think long before you start to see the problems with that. For one, if the bread and wine really did change into the body and blood of Christ, then Christ could not be a true man. After all, a true man cannot be in more than one place at the same time. Scripture says that Christ is a true man with a true human body. His body is in heaven, therefore it cannot be on earth in multiple places. But then the question still becomes, well, what does the bread and wine actually mean? And Lord's Day 29 says that it's called Christ's body, and therefore by implication also his blood, because this is sacramental language. Through the sacrament of Holy Supper, the Lord reminds us and assures us of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. He's, he's committed to us. But now look at the second question and answer. This one's going to take a little bit more work from us. The first part, near the bottom of page 544, clearly teaches us that, that the bread and wine point to God's commitment to us. There's this inexorable progression here. It says, look, when you eat bread and wine, it sustains you. Just as surely as bread and wine sustain you in this temporal life, this earthly, time-bound life, so the crucified body and shed blood of Christ sustains you in your spiritual life. But now look at the second part, starting on page 545, that begins with the phrase, but even more important. And it says, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth his holy signs in remembrance of him. And that probably does not look all that different from what he said in the first part. 
that we looked at, right? The bottom of page 544 does not look all that different from the top of page 545. So maybe the first time you read this, it confuses you. But it's actually quite different. Also because of what it does not say. This, this first part, near the bottom of 544, it says that his um, crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink. And in the next part, it says that we share in his true body and blood as surely as we eat and drink. But it does not say that the bread and the wine become Christ's body and blood. Now, maybe you're not getting the difference. And, and I had the advantage of being able to spend a lot more time looking at this before it made sense. But if you think about it, it's actually quite clever what they've done here in Lord's Day 29. Their argument is quite elegant. Again, they say that his body and blood are true food and drink for our souls. And they say that we are reminded that we share in his true body and blood whenever we partake. So they take this idea of being spiritually nourished by the body and blood of Christ, and they bring that as close as they can to the idea of eating and drinking without actually saying that we eat and drink the body and blood of Christ, because that would be going further than what Scripture is telling us. So the basic point that they're making is simply that God wants us to experience his commitment in the fullest sense possible. His commitment comes out of the total reconciliation that he has accomplished for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they say the life of Christ is our life, mediated by the Holy Spirit. See, through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood. And the suffering and obedience of Christ is ours, as decreed by the Father. The resurrection proves it. So those who belong to Christ are considered as innocent as Adam and Eve before the fall. In fact, you, at this very moment, are even further than Adam and Eve because you have the positive obedience of Christ. The Catechism says to us, all his suffering and obedience are certainly ours as if personally had suffered and paid for our sins. Not just his suffering, but his obedience not just his suffering, but also his obedience. Christ has accomplished far more than Adam ever could have in his short time. And he has given it to you. Not just his suffering, but also his obedience. And so, from that perspective, you go back to Psalm 36 and you read it and you really start to see the truth of these words. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So we've seen that through the sacrament of Holy Supper, the Lord reminds us and assures us of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. We've seen that he calls us to reflect on the nature of the sacrament. Now let's see how he calls us to reflect on, his, on our participation in the sacrament. So one big question we should always ask ourselves is, do we really see our need for Christ? And the end of our Lord's Day says, all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. His suffering paid for our sins of commission, the things that we did wrong. 
His obedience paid for our sins of omission, the things that we should have done but didn't do. So do we truly see that our sins of omission and commission had to be paid for by his suffering and obedience? Psalm 36 can help us grow in this awareness of our need for redemption. You look again at the opening words of Psalm 36. The wicked person in the opening verses of this psalm demonstrates the corrupting power of sin. It's unstoppable. By nature, he does not understand grace, but he does not understand sin either. He does not understand how deeply sin is rooted in his heart. It says there is no fear of God before his eyes. He simply doesn't see it. He simply cannot comprehend that there is a God to whom he will one day have to give account. A God who sees him and will one day judge him. He thinks that he'll get away with it. He does not understand that he will be found out. So in the opening verses already, we, we get that sense of the craziness, the insanity of sin. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. And the psalm also shows us the destructive nature of sin. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. And what's worse, he knew better at one point in time. Maybe this was even a church member because he, he knew what was wise and what was good. But it says he has ceased to act wisely and do good. That implies there was a time when he was at least somewhat aware of the difference between right and wrong. But now he has ceased to act wisely and to do good. In fact, all of his desires are corrupted. Every part of him is corrupted. So deeply rooted is a sin. Verse 4 says, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He's completely contaminated. His thoughts are corrupted. His intent is corrupted. His desires are corrupted. He's thoroughly corrupted from beginning to end. Look at all the words and expressions used to describe this person. Utterly corrupted, a hellish preview of the consequences of sin in only four verses. The wicked person is inexorably opposed to God. And you know what? This is what all of us look like apart from the saving grace of God. Each one of us has the same basic heart as the wicked, unless your heart has been regenerated this is you that he's describing. There's no third place where you get to rest between God and the wicked and to be your own moral guide, your own moral arbiter. It's either one or the other. Either your heart is unregenerated and you're wicked or it's regenerated and you belong to God. And our biggest problem in faith is that we simply don't believe this. But until we do, we are never going to understand our own need. And that's why the psalm makes such an abrupt switch in verse 5. It is, it is working with extremes here, with, with contrast. It's trying to bring this idea across to us in the strongest possible way. It wants to show us that our, our true need, highlight our true condition against the backdrop of God's steadfast love, or as we could say, His hearty love. Not saying, look, this is, this is the covenant love of God. This is what you need to 
focus on. God's steadfast love is his covenant love. No holds barred, over-the-top, extravagant love that he shows to his people in the covenant. And verse 6 refers to his righteousness. God's righteousness is the degree to which he keeps his word. And he always keeps his word. So you can always count on his righteousness. You can always count on his cleansing, on his purification, on his renewal. He promises that to us through Jesus Christ. He gives it to us. He reminds us of that in the Lord's Supper. And he, we need constant reminding because we keep on forgetting. We need constant reminding of our need for Christ. And we need constant reminding of God's provision through Christ. And in the Lord's Supper, he constantly remind us, reminds us. And he doesn't mind doing that over and over. He wants us to understand, to see our need for Christ. The Lord's Supper will do you no good if you come here without a burning awareness of that need. We need his righteousness. We need his sanctification. We need them as surely as we need food and drink. But when we go in that awareness, we do experience his hearty love and faithfulness. Something happens to us during the Lord's Supper. Why else would you go if there's no benefits? He did command us to celebrate it in remembrance of him. What would be the point of celebrating it if we didn't actually receive tangible benefits from it? Every time we partake, we're reminded that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs in remembrance of him. Now, this message of the Lord's Supper is a very important message in a time when people crave authenticity and often look for it through emotional means. We live in an age when many churches manipulate people into feeling a particular way through the use of certain kinds of music and lighting effects. But true authenticity is not found through manipulation. We don't manipulate people into faith. True authenticity is found in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper where the Lord reminds us and assures us of His hearty love and faithfulness towards us. Focuses on Him, not on us. But at the same time, we shouldn't think that the elements themselves will change us or change anything in our lives. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of His hearty love and faithfulness, but it's the same love, the same faithfulness that's getting preached to you every single week. Often on a Lord's Supper Sunday, the parking lot is extra full. You ever notice that? It's hard to find parking on a Lord's Supper Sunday, especially before the split. And of course, it's, it's festive to see so many vehicles that they end up having to park in the overflow. But, but is, that, is that not maybe the remnant of Roman Catholic thinking still in our midst, even after 500 years? Is it so deeply rooted after all, Roman Catholics make, make the mistake of confusing the elements with the grace itself. Maybe we do the same thing, because why else would people make more of an effort to come to the Lord's Supper than to a regular service? Maybe we're not that different, actually. Maybe what the catechism is so painstakingly laying out for us here is, is something that we find in every human heart. We crave more in our worship. And maybe you've been disappointed sometimes, at how ordinary the Lord's Supper can seem. 
from that perspective, the mess with its singing, its stained glass windows, its elaborate rituals, its robed and solemn priests can have something very appealing about it. It has more weight. It feels like you're connected to a very ancient tradition. And yet, through the sacrament of Holy Supper, the Lord reminds us and assures us of His hearty love and faithfulness towards us. And this is what He's provided, the bread and the wine. And when we look for anything beyond that, we have rejected Him. No matter how religious we might feel. So in the end, you simply need to take God at His word. Through the sacrament of Holy Supper, the Lord reminds us and assures us of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. That requires us to respond in faith. God does not call us first to believe him and only then make his promise. No, the promise always comes first. Just like in baptism, faith is not the prerequisite to the promise. But when God has made his promise, he expects us to respond in faith. And we see that same idea reflected at the end of Psalm 36. David doesn't first wait until he feels assured and only then focus on God's covenant promises. Instead, he takes his point of departure in those promises. He looks at the contrast between God and his promises and the world around him, and he responds to those promises in faith. He doesn't wait first. He just believes. But that does have an effect in his world. Because look, you come to the end of the psalm, and in the closing verse we see that God has preserved him while the wicked are ultimately struck down. But it took a whole, a whole psalm to get to that point. You need to walk by faith. And you know what? We need to live by the same faith. And that, that's what the Lord's Supper confirms us in. Through the sacrament of Holy Supper, the Lord reminds us and assures us of his hearty love and faithfulness towards us. What greater assurance could anyone have? Amen.